0: Good morning. Thank you again for joining us. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are in our third week of a series going through the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi, I have to say, I said this the very first week, it's a, it's a tough message to receive. It's, it's a tough message to preach, it's a tough message to hear, and it's even, uh, a, an even tougher message to put into practice. Uh, the words of Malachi are very, very challenging to us. And today we come to another one of those difficult passages. Um, and I, I, I've wrestled with this passage all week long. Very, uh, it's, it's not very often that I come to a passage like this and and it causes me so much trouble. Number one, because it's so rich. There's so many things that I I could have drawn out, I could have said, I, w- I could probably spend a, a whole month of Sundays teaching through everything in this passage, but we just don't have that kind of time. It's just that thick and that dense and that rich, so I encourage you, uh, take, take your Bibles home today and study this passage, some on your own. There's a lot of great resources and tools out there for you to really study and understand this passage uh, for for what God intends for us to understand about it. But the other thing that I want to say about this passage is this. We're going to talk about some difficult things. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about uh, a believer being married to an unbeliever and, and some very difficult things. And, and let me just start by saying that I know that there are a lot of um, people in here who have been through divorce, whether it was personally personally, Maybe you're going through a divorce, maybe it's a, a friend who's going through a divorce, or maybe you come from parents who were divorced. And, and I want to be honest about this passage, that there have been a lot of teachings in churches that uh, have made people feel unnecessarily guilty for something that's taken place in the past. And sometimes there, there have been times in the church where people who have been divorced have been made to feel as if they're stuck in some sort of perpetual sin. That because they were divorced 10, 15, 20 years ago, regardless of the circumstance, there have been times when when the church has made them feel guilty that that they're kind of stuck in that sin. And let me just tell you this morning, that is not the case. That if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is forgiveness. Um, And perhaps you're here in one of those marriages where you find yourself married to an unbeliever, and the same thing is true for you that you are not stuck in some sort of perpetual sin. We'll talk a little bit about that, um, that there is forgiveness for Je- through Jesus Christ. And this morning, what we talk about has nothing to do with your past. It has everything to do with how we move forward as a church, how we look at marriage, how we think about marriage, and how we talk about marriage as a church. So I, I just want to alleviate that, and I, I want to encourage you that you're going to hear some of these verses. You're going to hear some of this stuff in and our tendency as human beings is to hear what we want to hear or hear what we think was said. And I just want to encourage you that it is not my intention this morning at all, nor is it the intention of these verses to make anyone who's been through divorce, uh, remarriage, or any of those things to feel guilty or to feel like some sort of second-class citizen in the church because that is simply not how God sees you. And that is not how we at River Rock Bible Church see you. Amen? Let's move on. All right, so we're going to jump right in to Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. And there's going to be a word that's going to come up a number of times, and when you see it on the screen, when it comes across, I want you to say that word out loud, and that word is treacherously or treacherous. And I want us to see how many times, somebody keep count for me, how many times do we read this word, does this word appear in these verses? So let's start with verse 10 of Malachi chapter 2. You guys are going to have to participate. I know you're a little bit further away from me in this new building here, but you've got to wake up. We've got more coffee over here if you need it. Here we go. Chapter 10. Don't all of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act... Against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has acted, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning because you know, he no longer respects your offerings and receives them gladly from your hand. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted against her and though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant, didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring So watch yourselves carefully and do not act against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves and do not act. Now, Somebody give me a count. How many times did that word treacherously show up? Five times in six verses. Five times. Whenever something gets repeated, it means it's important. So what does that word treacherously mean? Treacherously means deceitful or unfaithful. And the encouragement here is to not act unfaithfully. And what we see is that the people of Israel have come back from captivity and they've been unfaithful to God and unfaithful to the promises and the covenant that he has made with them. The, the big issue in this passage, we're going to see, it's going to talk a lot about marriage, but the big issue is not necessarily marriage. That's a symptom of a much bigger problem. The big issue that God has with his people here is that they've been unfaithful to him and they've been unfaithful to one another. And So I want us to look at just a couple things from this passage. The first thing that that I want us to see is that in our relationship with God, something that he desires for us is that we would be a faithful community that we would be a faithful community. If you look back at verse 10, it says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, to fully understand the charges that God is bringing against the people of Israel here, I think we have to first understand and remind ourselves of the covenant that's being spoken of. Malachi says, talks about the covenant. And here's the covenant that he's talking about. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we read this. This is God speaking to Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And later on in chapters 15, he promises that your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And then in verse 17, he makes them the promise of land that is what we call today Palestine and Israel. He promises them. He says, I will keep my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of the offspring of your offspring after you. And to you and your offspring after you, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. So God makes him this promise. Abraham dies. He only has one son. He doesn't have the descendants. He doesn't own any land. The only land that he owns is the land in which he buries his wife. That's it. But then, years later, God renews his covenant with the descendants of Abraham through Moses, and we read this in Exodus. We read, Now if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, this is God speaking to the people of Israel, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the earth, all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So God says, look, I am looking for a people that will be faithful to me, and he uses this word holy. And and this is one of the things that I really think that God is getting to. Because it's our faithfulness that leads us into holiness. As we follow the Lord, as we obey his commands, that that brings us into holy living, holiness. What does that mean? Holiness simply means set apart. That by the way, the people of Israel lived all the commands that God gave them, they were never meant to be a way of salvation. We see that very clearly in the New Testament that the law was never meant To put in people's minds that, hey, if I could just keep the law, if I could just do all these good things, then God will accept me. The law was given, number one, to point out that you'll never be able to keep God's law perfectly and that you're in need of a savior. But number two, it was meant to be guidelines of, hey, here's how you live in a way that honors God and that sets you apart from the rest of the world. So that when people see the way that you live, when they come through Israel, When they come through here on their way to Egypt and back to the Middle East and from Europe all the way to the Middle East, to Egypt, wherever they're going, that when they come through here, they would see something different and they would desire to be a part of that. But in order to do that, you're going to have to live different and separate lives. And then we read this warning to the people before they go into the land. It says, do not intermarry with them who is them. Them are the people of Canaan. God is saying, look, don't intermarry with the people of Canaan. Because why? Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asher poles and burn up their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So God warns them and he tells them, look, you're going to go into this land and you're going to see beautiful men and beautiful women. And I'm telling you, if you marry them, they will lead you away from worship of me. And the only thing that I desire from you, more than anything, is that you would worship me and worship me alone. That you would be faithful to our covenant. That you would live this holy and separate life. And he gives them a warning, he says, if, if you intermarry, if you don't wipe these people out, if you don't drive them out of the land, you're going to be led to fall in, you're going to fall in with them. And when that happens, I'm going to remove you from the land. But because God is gracious, he brings them back. And, and what happens? We know the story, we know that as the years go on, that Israel continues to show that she's unfaithful as a community, that, that she's unfaithful. And so what does God do? God puts them in exile. The Babylonians come and take them off, carry them into exile. They're in exile for 70 years, but God is faithful. God is faithful, and he demonstrates his love for Israel by allowing a remnant to return. And here we are 100 years after the return of the people, and they're falling back into the exact same sin that led them into captivity in the first place. And it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that that not much has changed over over a couple thousand years? Because I imagine that the men who were committing this sin, the men who were marrying these pagan women, though they were guilty of, of intermarrying and dealing treacherously with their wives, undoubtedly would have been quick to insist that their actions affected no one but themselves. Sound familiar? Well, this is between me and no one else. What I do doesn't matter, but what they failed to realize is that they were a part of a covenant community that God had called them not just as individuals, but as a body, as a nation, as a people that were to be set apart. And so they begin to, they begin to weaken the covenant not only with the other people, but also with God. Every act of unfaithfulness by God's people weakens and erodes the people of God as a whole. It's something that I think we often miss. God's desire has always been bigger than just individual believers. His desire has always been for a community of people, a a group of people that would live separate and set apart for him, that would bring honor and glory to his name, that his name would be made great. And the second thing we see is um, what God desires for his people. So we see what God desires his people to be, that he desires us to be this faithful community. And then in the next few verses, we're going to see that God desires faith-filled unions. God desires faith-filled unions. Look with me at verse 12, 11 and 12. Judah has acted treacherously and done a detestable thing, has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. To the man who does this, May the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here? The first way that they acted treacherously in their marriages was by intermarrying. Now, some people have read this in the past, and let me make this very clear. This is not about interracial marriage. This has absolutely nothing to do with that. In fact, we can look at stories like Ruth and Boaz. Remember, Ruth was a Moabitess. Yet she's lifted up in Scripture, and their marriage is lifted up. In fact, Jesus is one of their very descendants. So it has nothing to do with an interracial marriage. It has everything to do with an interfaith marriage. What God is saying is, hey, uh, you are to have absolutely nothing to do with these pagan women. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's, that's really loud up there. That wind is kicking, isn't it? Uh, the reason God desires for them to marry within the Jewish faith is because later He says, I desire godly offspring. I desire godly offspring. And the best chance for that to happen is for mom and dad to both be living and honoring God. And here's the thing you know this very well, you've seen it all your life. You can remember back to high school and middle school. Right? Your parents warned you about the people that you hang out with because the people that you spend the most, t- most time with are the people that you're going to become. That's exactly who you're going to become like. And God says, I know that if you marry these women, if, if you marry these women who are worshiping other gods, that they're going to pull you away from me, that you're going to end up worshiping these other gods. And so he says, just don't do it. Just don't do it. You need to be united with someone else who shares your faith, that shares the same faith. And the point of this verse is that when we claim to love God with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength, and then we willfully choose to unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most intimate and most personal human relationship that we will have, we profane the holiness of God. We profane the holiness of God and we act as though our emotional drive for human intimacy is more important than God's holiness and nearness to us by the very act of marrying someone outside of the faith, they were saying, God, my physical pleasure, God, my relationship with this person is more important to me than my relationship with you. And they set that aside. They chose something less instead of the greater thing that God desired for them. Now, again, I want to be clear what's not being said here. This is, again, not about interracial marriage. And the second thing I want to be clear about is I know that there are families uh, here and in this church where you are married to an unbeliever. You find yourself as a believer married to an unbeliever. Let me be very clear about this. God is not calling you to leave your spouse. In fact, we know later in 1 Peter chapter 3 that the very opposite is true. That God encouraged us to stay with our spouse and to continue to live submissive to, to God in order that we might see our spouse come to faith, uh, and in fact, later, um, Paul even says to the Corinthians, he says, "Do not separate from your spouses first corinthians seven twelve through thirteen um, is the encouragement for us to stay with our spouse, even if you find yourself married to an unbeliever all right so that's that 's not being said there number two. Um, and number one, is, it's not saying it's possible for an unbeliever to be converted. Number two, it's not saying that if you're married to an unbeliever, that you should leave your spouse. You're to remain married and continue to be faithful to the Lord and hopefully see that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning, college students, singles, maybe you're single again and you're here this morning, my encouragement to you is to make sure that the person you're pursuing romantically is a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I heard someone say this, and it made a lot of sense to me, that missionary dating usually leads to miserable divorce. We always think, oh, that girl, that guy, I can change them. I can get them to put their trust in Jesus. But it only leads to heartache and pain later on. It leads to heartache and pain later on. So as you're pursuing someone to marry, if you're here and you're single and you're pursuing someone to marry, make sure that you're on the same page spiritually. I can tell you from my own marriage There have been times in our lives, there have been struggles and things that my wife and I have been through, where the only thing we can come back to is the common bond that we have in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, that's enough for us to say that we're going to work through this. Because right now, that's all we can see, and that's all we need to stay and to work through it. So God desires us to be in faith-filled unions. And the last thing we want to look at is that God desires faithful commitments. Faithful commitments. Let's look at verses 13 through 16. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offering and receives them gladly from your hands. If you want to know more about this, go back and listen to Stephen's message from last week. He did a great job covering this. Verse 14 says, Yet you ask for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us from a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A Godly offspring, so watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth if he hates and divorces his wife. now, let me stop here. Some translations here says God hates divorce, right it just says it very clearly. Um, this is, this is a, a, a little bit different translation. And let me just tell you, verses 15 and 16 in the Hebrew are probably the two hardest verses in Hebrew to understand. So both readings are, are possible as correct. Um, but I, I do tend to like this verse better, which God is saying, if a man, if a man hates and divorces his, his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. Some translations may say with violence. It's an act of violence. Either way, whichever way you understand these verses, whether, whichever translation you prefer, uh, I think we can all say that God does not think very highly of divorce. I think the message comes across pretty clearly. Uh, it says, Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. God's desire is for us to be faithful to our commitments, that we would have faithful commitments. The men of Israel were coming back from captivity. They've been living there in the land. They've been married to their Israelite wives and they're starting to look around and they're seeing this newer, uh, different model. And they're starting to think, you know what? I think it's about time that I trade in my old model for a new one. And so they start divorcing their Israelite wives for these pagan wives. And God says, don't you realize that your marriage covenant is not just between you? Marriage is not just some social construct, some legal contract that we enter into. Marriage is a covenant. It's between your spouse and God. I'll never forget my wedding day, standing there next to my wife, looking her in the eyes and say, I, Charlie, take you, Amanda, to be my wife. And I covenant before God and these witnesses to love, honor, cherish, and serve you until death do us part. Anybody in here say something similar to that? As God is my witness, sometimes we say, God is there. God is present. He is as much a part of your marriage as your spouse, if not more. And God is saying, look, when you break your covenant with your spouse, when you just divorce her and send her away, you're not just breaking covenant with her, you're breaking covenant with me. And, and I don't need to tell anyone in this room who's been through divorce or is going through a divorce why some translations would say God hates divorce, why God's feelings against divorce are so strong. But notice what it does not say. It does not say God hates divorced people. Amen? It does not say that. It does not say that if you've been divorced that there is no forgiveness and that you have to live your life with guilt and shame. It does not say that. It says God hates divorce. So the encouragement here this morning is, the reality is, is this, we must make an investment into our marriages. The people of Israel, um, I imagine what happened was they were looking around, they were seeing this newer, younger model, and they decided that it would be easier, my life would be better, I would be having more fun if I were with this other spouse. And rather than make the effort to work on their marriage with their current spouse, they just, they just opted out. They pulled the ejection handle. And they got out of their marriages. But let me tell you, everything that you think you are going to find in another relationship is already in your current marriage if you will make the investment. If you will take the time and make the effort and do the work that it takes sometimes to be married and to remain married, you will find even more happiness. I have four friends. We just did a marriage series last month uh, last month and a half ago. We did a marriage series, and I have four friends in the last month who have called to tell me that they are getting a divorce. Some of them are the ones pursuing it. Some of them, their wives are the ones pursuing it. Uh, And I I can tell you, one of the things that I've I've said to all of my friends is this. Whatever you think you're going to find in another relationship is not going to be there. You're never going to find it. You're going to be just as unhappy because all the problems that you think you're running away from are just going to follow you. If you would just stay in this marriage and work on the issues that you have, you would find the happiness that God desires for you to have. You would find happiness like you can't believe. My prayer for every single one of those marriages is that they would be restored. My encouragement to us as a church this morning is that that we would... uh, Heed God's warning that we would understand the reason God is so strong against divorce is because He knows what it what it does to us. He knows the pain that it causes. He knows the hurt that it causes. Even if you're a, a, a child of divorced parents, I can tell you um, from from mine and Amanda's own experience, even as adult children, when your parents get the divorce, it hurts. It hurts. So God very strongly says, this is not something that I'm in favor of. This is not something that I want to encourage. My encouragement for you is to stay with the covenant spouse of your youth. So we see all this. We see that God is calling his people to a different way of life. But what, is it, what does it all mean to us today? Because as I said earlier, God talks a lot about marriage in this chapter. And I, I, I don't think we could make any mistake That God puts a high priority on marriage. That God says marriage is a wonderful thing, marriage is a great thing, it's a sacred thing. In fact, earlier in the chapter when he says, you've profaned my sanctuary, uh, I think a better translation is, you have profaned the thing that I call holy. And he's talking specifically about marriage. God says, marriage is holy. But there's something more to this passage. It's more than just about marriage. God is calling his people to faithfulness, and that faithfulness leads to holiness. He's telling them, I want you to live separate. I want you to live different. I want you to be set apart from the rest of the world, to be an example to them. And so what does that mean for us today? How do we make some further application for us today? Well, first and foremost, I want us to go back to um, the idea that God calls us to be in a faithful community, just like the nation of Israel. Those who are in Christ Jesus, God has called us to be a part of a community. Now, let me be very clear about this. I do not believe that the church has replaced Israel. I believe God made very specific promises to the people of Israel uh, and that he's going to be faithful to those promises. But I do believe that we have been grafted in, uh, that, that God now calls us as his people to be set apart, to be holy. And here's the thing, that we are saved only by our individual faith. We are saved only by our individual faith. Our spouse's faith can't save us. Our mom's faith can't save us. um, Our best friend's faith can't save us. The only faith that can save us is our own personal faith in Jesus Christ. But I think we miss so often that God doesn't call us just to be individual Christians. He calls us to be a part of a larger people. We read this in 1 Peter It says, But as the one who called you is holy, so you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And then in chapter 2, he says this. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I, I think what we can take away from this, what we need to see here is that it's not just about me. It's about the body. It's about the community. How many times have you, have you seen maybe one of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? They sin, they mess up in a big way. A lot of times it's those pastors on TV, right? They, they have an affair and then you're having a, co- a conversation with one of your friends and they say, well, see, that's what all Christians are like. That's what all Christians are like. All Christians are hypocrites because they do this, because they're like this person. And what we have to realize is, as much as the men of Israel thought, hey, my sin is only affecting me, so I don't know why God's so concerned about this. I don't know why the rest of the community is concerned about this, is that it doesn't just affect you. It affects the whole body. We're called as a body to be something different. And we have to be reminded, Ephesians 4, we read these words, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called You, by the way, is plural. You, plural, were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. It's just a reminder that, hey, we are in this together. And throughout the New Testament, we're called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to encourage one another. But we have to remember that what we do doesn't just reflect on us personally. It reflects on the whole body of Christ. And so there are times that we need to come along one another. First, uh, Ephesians four fifteen goes on and it says, speak the truth to one another in love. And there are times when we need to have the truth spoken to us about, hey, your actions, your attitude, the words you're saying right now, they're not really reflecting the heart of God and they're, they're really reflecting poorly on the whole body of Christ. I just want to challenge you in that, in a loving way to come through that. And we'll talk more about that in a second. The second thing that we need to see is that God desires for us to have faith-filled unions. Just like the people of Israel, they're, they're warned against joining with the pagans. We are warned against joining with the things of this world. And let me ask you, what are some ways that you find yourself perhaps united to the world? That you find yourself intermarried? That you know what the word of God says, you know what his desires for you are, but somehow you find yourself intermarried with the things of the world. Now, what I'm not saying is that we need to, uh, you know, stop going to church, stop or not not going to church, stop going to work, stop going to movies, stop doing anything that's worldly. I don't think that's what Jesus meant in John 17 when he said that they are in the world but they are not of the world. That's not what he meant. But we need to think about what are my feelings, what are my actions, what are my attitudes, what are my behaviors, and are they in line with the Word of God or not? Uh, this is a great example. One of my friends posted this on Facebook way back during the election, and I loved it. It was a a great question that he asked. He said, are you filtering your politics through the scripture or the scripture through your politics? One is discipleship, the other is idolatry. And I, I think it's true, and let me just say this, first and foremost, God is not a Republican. God is also not a Democrat okay? And for the 1% of you, 2% of you out there, God is also not a libertarian, okay? He's just not. I know Cody's leaving, but no, he's, he's just not, right? There, there are issues on every single side that we are just flat wrong. And the most important thing is not when, when you vote, when you think about those things, when you think about social issues, it's not how you feel that matters, We have to come back to this. What does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? And am I more in in love with my feelings? Am I more in love with how I feel and how it makes me feel to hold this position than I am with my relationship with God and his word? What do you allow to make, to be the deciding factor in your life? Is it your feelings or is it the word of God? And that brings me to the last thing is faithful to our commitments faithful to our commitments, just like the men of Israel, man, things got tough in their marriages. Something better, nicer, newer came along and they decided, you know what, I want that. I'm going to pursue that newer, nicer thing and I'm going to divorce my wife. My question to you is, in what ways do you find yourself divorcing God or divorcing his people separating from God and separating from his people. Maybe the pastor says something on a Sunday morning that's a little bit hard, it's a little bit challenging, and it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And rather than digging into the word of God, saying, is there any truth to this? Because this is a hard teaching. Is this true? Is this right? Does it line up with the rest of scripture? And if it does, God, help me change my attitudes towards this. Instead of doing that, what do we do? Well, I'm not going back to that church. Or a friend comes to us and says, man, I I see this attitude in you and I I just want you to know it doesn't reflect the heart of God and it's reflecting really badly on God's people. I want to walk with you through this. Can I help you through this? Whatever's inside of you that's causing this attitude to come out, I want to be there for you. And instead of telling that friend, thank you, what do we do? I don't want to be friends anymore. We're unfriended on Facebook, right? We, We tend to pull away when things get hard, when things get tough, instead of press in. Just like marriages take an investment, they take some work. Uh, it takes an investment, it takes some work to be faithful to the things of God so that we can bring out that holiness in ourselves and in each other that God desires. I love Proverbs 18.1. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, The one who isolates himself pursues selfish desires, and he rebels against all sound judgment. We use this uh, verse with our kids a lot. When they start pulling away and they start not wanting to listen to mom and dad, I love to remind them about this. Are are you going to rebel against sound judgment? There's a word that's used in scripture for someone who does that. Who knows what that word is? Starts with it's an F word, four letters, you can say it in church. Fool. Good. Glad someone yelled out that one. Fool. A fool Right? We don't want to be foolish. The fool pulls away. We want to be wise. We tell our kids all the time, are you being wise or are you being a fool? Which one do you want to be? The choice is yours. God's encouragement to us is, hey, be faithful first and foremost to me. Be faithful to me. Be faithful to one another. Be faithful in all that you do so that your lives would be different. That your lives would be set apart. That you would be a holy people called by my name. That when people look at you, they would desire to be with me. And that they would say, there is someone who is faithful to the Lord. Now, I want to make something absolutely clear this morning. Absolutely clear. If you're here this morning and have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, let me just say, it does not matter how faithful you are to keeping the commands that are found in Scripture if you lack a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. His greatest desire, God's greatest desire, is that you would put your trust in Christ and Christ alone as your Savior. That's where holiness begins. Because here's the thing, I'll be the first to admit it, I still mess up. I still sin. I still strive to be better every single day. I still strive to to do a better job keeping these commandments. But here's the thing that, that I always get to come back to is by the grace of God, through my faith in Jesus Christ, when I put my trust in him my sins are washed away completely. And that when he looks at me, scripture says that we become the very righteousness of God. And so when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin anymore. He doesn't hold my sin against me anymore. He sees his perfectly holy son, Jesus Christ. And that is not about anything that I have done. That is not about any amount of church services that I've attended, good things that I have done, money that I've given. That is all about putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so if you're here this morning and that is not true for you, I will be at the Connections table after the service. And I would encourage you, come talk to me. Ask your questions. Your questions are welcome. I would be happy to walk that journey with you. This morning as we close, we're going to do a take two. And take two is simply a time for us to stop and reflect on what the Word of God is saying. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been struggling in your marriage and there's something that God has shown you about your marriage or a special thing that you want God to, uh, to do in your marriage that you want to spend some time in prayer about. I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself connected to something ungodly in a way that you know that, sever- that, that, that bond needs to be severed. Or perhaps you find yourself here realizing that, you know what? The reason I'm at, at this church today is because I left a church a long time ago because the pastor challenged me on something. And you need to go back and you need to revisit that. You need to say, what does the Word of God say? Maybe you need to think through how you filter your thoughts and your feelings. Are you filtering your thoughts and your feelings through Scripture? Are you filtering Scripture through your thoughts and your feelings? Whatever it is that God is saying to you today, I encourage you just take some time, write it in your bulletin, write down what God is saying, and then here's the other thing I want you to do. Write down what step you're going to take to do something about that this week. Let's take two.